One of the most immediate rewards of visiting another culture is meeting the people and getting to know what makes them tick. And that includes opening yourself up to their food specialties. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up in the hour ahead, we're joined by two travel experts who run their own gastronomic tour company in Tuscany. Jamie Blair Gould was raised in Britain, and his wife Nina Derricks grew up in Belgium. But they relocated to Lucca in Tuscany a few years ago to raise their family. So from Britain to Belgium to Bella Italia, you can expect to get clued in on the culinary finds for a wide swath of Europe. Um, for instance, we eat a lot of hair. And later in the hour, travel writer David Farley tells us how he used food as a framework for a recent trip to Vietnam. And he tells us what makes today's Saigon sizzle. I was so grateful that I just said, I'm going to go sit down in this alleyway with all these Vietnamese men and, and eat whatever they're eating. And the food was just incredible. We're enjoying the world one taste treat at a time. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. David Farley followed one of New York's hot young chefs back to his homeland of Vietnam. He did this to discover how Saigon has turned into a foodie's mecca. He'll join us in a bit to talk about this and tell us what kind of welcome he had as an American 35 years after what they call the American War ended. That's a little later in the hour ahead. Let's start today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves with a look at the variety of food traditions you can enjoy in Western Europe. We're joined by a tour guide couple who specialize in putting culinary tours together for Americans who love to eat well. Every time they do a survey about why people travel, it's to eat. It's always a big part of your travel experience, enjoying the cuisine. Food is culture, cuisine is pride. Eating is integral to a fine vacation, and we're talking a European vacation right now, and time and time again, I've learned that you don't need to be rich to enjoy eating your way across Europe. I'm joined by two gourmets, two guides, two people who really know how to eat well in Europe, Jamie Blair Gould and Nina Derricks. And uh, Nina is uh, Flemish-Belgian. Jamie's from uh, Britain, but he's living in Italy right now. Nina and Jamie, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Nice to be here. Jamie, if I say food is culture and cuisine is pride, how does that resonate with you? Uh, yeah, no, I think that's probably correct. I've never heard that expression, but I, I think... I just made I, it up. Oh, very good. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I, I, I understand that. I mean, um, sometimes I think, particularly in Britain, we just eat to live. Right. Whereas um, cuisine has uh, uh, other elements, passion, history, tradition, all sorts of other aspects to it. Yeah, and Nina, when, when you think of regional pride, how does that tie in with the uh, cuisine? Um, when I think of my own country and of my own region, Flanders, we come from a farmer's background. The products that are being used in your cuisine have first of all been selected in the local shops. They're often farmer's products. It's very important to judge your ingredients from the beginning and then get the best out of them in your cuisine. It really reflects a mentality, I would say. So how does uh, ingredients work into Flemish cuisine and, and culture? How does that all tie together? And by the way, Flanders would be the the uh, northern part of Belgium, basically. It's the northern part of so Belgium. So Belgium is uh, bilingual. Right. The southern Walloons speak French. The northern people in Belgium speak uh, Flemish, and you are Flemish from That's Flanders. That's right. And then, of course, not to forget, we have an, a German community in the east. And in Brussels, it's all mixed up. It's all mixed up, and I think the first language there is English now. But when you go to Brussels, people love food. I mean, you can eat very well in Brussels. Absolutely. In Belgium, we say that we have French-based cuisine and German portions, so, best of both worlds, but it takes twice as long to digest. Heavy food. That's right. Now, when you think of regional uh, ingredients and the history and the culture tying together, give me an actual example of that in Flanders. Um, for instance, we eat a lot of hair in um, hair? Belgium. Yes. Um, you mean what do you rabbit? call it in American? Um, rabbit and hair made in uh, stews, which refers back to the farmer's background again. So in, in the Middle Ages, if they need a little bit of uh, meat, they'd catch a rabbit on the edge of the farm? Yes, that too. And also our local farmers. For instance, I grew up on a local uh, little holding, and uh, my father, we had all pet rabbits. And for us, it was very clear that we would eat those rabbits at the end of the day. Oh, that's very frightening. You're a little child, and you get to be friends with a rabbit, and then someday soon, it'll be on your dinner table. Uh, we never saw it that way. We just knew this was food, and for a while, it's there, and you can cuddle it, but you eat it. I met a woman who uh, has a, a farm in the Dordogne. It was a goose farm, and they were force-feeding their geese. And uh, all these geese, they grow up quite quickly. Jamie, do you know, can you explain to us the process of the gavage? 
Uh, well, um, not exactly, no. So, Jamie, you're reluctant to answer that because it's it's considered barbaric to force feed and slaughter the geese? or Well, no, it's, it's a contentious issue, I think, uh, particularly mm. today. There are those that uh, feel that it's quite a cruel process. Um, I have to say, it's I kind of fudge the issue. I don't go out and buy it, but if I'm served it, I eat it. Do you enjoy it? Oh, yes. And you don't have to go to um, confession afterwards? <laughs> <laughs> I should do. You should, yeah. Let me um, be bold enough to alienate a few uh, geese lovers and talk about the gavage. Because foie gras is a beautiful thing. Do you have foie gras in Belgium? Um, no, we don't. It's a very French thing. It's a very French thing. To the French, and a lot of English go down to the Dordogne for their foie gras. Dordogneshire, yes. Dordogneshire. It's, I mean, it's just invaded by English people, and they got one thing on their mind when they get down to that beautiful part of southern France. Probably two things, foie gras and wine. Foie gras and wine. It's a nice marriage. Beautiful together. When I leave Dordogne, I need foie gras detox. <laughs> Now, just let me give you the case, because I, I went there as sort of an investigative reporter, um, uh, because I know in Chicago for a while, foie gras was uh, not allowed to be served. I mean, it was, it was just considered so barbaric. But the French goose farmer thinks differently about this. I visited this farm outside of Sarlat that welcomes travelers in to go to the farm and see the geese. And this woman there explained to me that the geese are very carefully taken care of. The geese uh, are force-fed the corn several times a day, and uh, their livers are basically a quarter of a pound, and then after they've gone through this force feeding, they become to be about one kilo or uh, two pounds, two point two and a quarter pounds, and then they're slaughtered. And the French love to eat this uh, big goose liver. Uh, the historic story, way back when, in the Middle Ages, French would catch these geese that had gorged themselves to grow their livers so they could make the migratory flight all the way down to Egypt. And they found these geese, and they ate the livers, and they said, oh, this is beautiful. And they thought, why don't we save the geese the trip to Egypt and we'll just uh, grow them here on the farm, feed them until their livers get fat, and we'll slaughter them and, and make it part of our, our cuisine. Uh, to this day, they've been uh, farming geese and force-feeding them. This friend of mine on the farm said the best foie gras is from the geese that have peaceful lives, that are, are well cared for, they're outdoors a lot and so on. It's a pretty quick process when they, they go through the force-feeding. And then like any other uh, animal in the food chain below us, they ultimately get slaughtered and ended up on the table. The reason I thought about this is because Nina was talking about having uh, rabbits uh, as pets. And then one day the children's pet is on the table and it's dinner, and it's part of the process. And in Europe, I just think people are close to the ground. They realize we've done this for ages. This is part of our, our culture. And in France, maybe not in Belgium, but in France, the foie gras is a big deal. And in Flanders, you eat your pet rabbits. And we also eat our pigeons who are used in pigeon racing. And if they're not champions, they get put in the pot. We ah. make soup out of our losers. So there's an incentive for pigeons to be good champions. Absolutely. My goodness. Now, when I'm running around Europe trying to find uh, good places, I work hard to find good restaurants. And I'm realizing there's a change in the way people find restaurants. And there's these applications on iPhones and so on. Uh, you know, in the United States, we have Urban Spoon and Yelp and this sort of thing. In Europe, is there a similar kind of application that people would have on their, on their mobile devices where they can get other people's recommendations of restaurants as they travel? Uh, as far as iPods, I'm not aware, but I'm not uh, a technical champion. But uh, certainly in terms of the Internet, there are definitely uh, recommendations. So what's a good source on the Internet if people are wondering, what should I eat when I'm in uh, Amsterdam or Paris or Lyon? Uh, so, I mean, I just Google it uh, and I would recommendations and then it would come up and then you could just uh, hit, hit the one that you wanted to. Traditionally, it's been uh, a lot of people are really into the Michelin guides, the yes. Michelin red guide. Yes. And I know the Michelin green guide because it's really good for sightseeing and history and art. But gourmets who travel around Europe love this Michelin red guide. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's a, it's a particular type of food. And I think if you like the Michelin experience, then um, the guides, of course, are the way to go. But um, I think you have to see it in a, another light. It's not just about people often complain about tiny portions and the over-elaboration. But I think the value of it isn't just in the food, it's the entire show. That's a good way to put it, because if you're just looking for a lot of good food, you're not going to get it at a three-star Michelin Well, restaurant. I wouldn't say you're not going to get it, but it's, um, it's very expensive and not very much. But uh, it is, a, a, on a special occasion, it's the entire show, the service, the decor, the ambience... Um, and it, it really is a special thing. And the and, presentation. And the presentation, of course, is uh, tremendously important. So if you're going to spend uh, 100 euros on a Michelin star meal, Nina, you're going to appreciate more than just the taste of that salad or the taste of that soup. It's the whole ambiance of it, definitely, the whole show. 
I know that chefs will almost commit suicide if they lose one of their treasured stars. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you have to work tremendously hard to get one of these stars, and it's um, a terrible thing if you lose it. I mean, uh, you've really got to be enormously dedicated to get them. Is there a lot of credibility, or is there any sort of corruption that people um, diminish the importance of these Michelin stars? Is it genuine or or have been corrupted? Oh, I believe it's genuine, yes. So it really is the ultimate. When you have a restaurant with a Michelin star, if you want to dress up and have the whole performance of the meal, if you got the money, it's worth the experience. If you enjoy that, yes. I mean, me personally, I enjoy it every now and then, but uh, I rather like the country-style food and the the hearty portions. But um, for a special occasion, it is quite an incredible thing. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about eating well in Europe, and I'm joined by Jamie Blair-Gould from England and Nina Derricks from Flanders in the north of Belgium. You know, one thing when I'm traveling around Europe, I am constantly reminded of the history of the food that I encounter. And there's a lot of poverty in the past, and it's kept alive in the cuisine. A lot of hardship in your cultures. Is there anything that comes to mind when you think of food that's fed to young people so they'll remember the the hardship of their grandparents? Yes, absolutely. I can think, for instance, of Belgian andive. Andive, I think you say, Belgian with love. Here it's promoted as with love from Belgium. The leaves of that vegetable... And and endive, we would say. Endive, yes. They were thrown away in compost heaps. Uh, They were just rubbish. And uh, in the war, people really looked for anything edible still through compost heaps. They found the roots of these vegetables buried underneath, started eating them, and thought those leaves that sprang up from those roots, which formed the light bulb, were highly edible. Now, that poor food has become a delicacy all over the world. And as I said, it's exported as... With love from Belgium. With love. Reminding uh, of the time when people had to scavenge just not to starve. Absolutely. I mean, all across Europe. Well, in Italy, um, ribolita. Um, or ribolita means reboiled, um, literally. And it's a soup and you cook it twice, but it's using up, um, I mean, it's poor food. I mean, so much of the great delicacies we have today is, is uh, food that people ate out of necessities. And uh, Ribolita is definitely one of those. In Trastevere, you go out to the uh, near the slaughterhouses, and there's restaurants that are specialties and all the little bits of the meat that wouldn't be sold in the market. Exactly, just like the uh, bouillabaisse started off. Uh, what you call bouillabaisse in the States is a very luxurious dish, but the original one in Marseille is made out of uh, uh, tiny little fish that weren't sold in the markets. They're rockfish. They cook it with potatoes and uh, saffron, and uh, it was a poor people's food, and today it's become highly luxurious. A good thing to know when you're traveling through Europe. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're eating our way through Europe with Jamie Blair-Gould and Nina Derricks. Your calls about food in Europe momentarily. We're eating our way across Europe as a way to enjoy the continent's rich variety of traditions. We'll take your calls for Jamie and Nina in a moment at 877-333-7425. And by email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. Jamie Blair Gould and Nina Derricks run a gourmet tour company from their home base in Tuscany. And they're opening up our palates to a wide variety of food traditions you'll find within a surprisingly small area in Western Europe. Their website is papillonselect.com. That's the French word for butterfly, P-A-P-I-L-L-O-N, select.com. We always have links to our guests in the radio section of ricksteves.com. 
And coming up in a bit, David Farley samples the street food of Saigon as a way to get acquainted with today's Vietnam. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're eating our way through Europe. When I travel in Europe, a lot of times I'm with people that just don't want to touch something because it's gross. There's a fish with a head on it or something like this. Mm. Or, and I like to go to the little bars in Europe all over Europe and eat ugly things on toothpicks and wash it down with local wine. Wonderful little hors d'oeuvres. I was just in Estonia, and they were selling pig's ears, crunchy fried pig's ears. And it was wonderful. It was the best thing I ate in Estonia. They told me a lot of people in Estonia, they don't emigrate abroad because they can't bear to live without their rustic bread. It's like cake. It's so good, the bread in Estonia. When you're traveling around Europe, Nina, do you find that there's some sort of uh, foods that might initially seem a little gross or, or put you off, but that you really have to try and at least to give a whirl? I would say I'm not a big pate fan, but I always give it a go, and you actually come across wonderful textures and blends. I would say give pate a go. I like that because all over Europe you can find local pates, and visually they're not always the exactly. most appealing. But you're, you say you recognize different textures. Yes, different textures, different combinations of flavors with berries that you cannot imagine. That, yes, I think is definitely worth it. A pate. Yes, pate and cheeses, etc. as well. Jamie. Oh, I have lots of gross ones, which I like. Tell me your favorite uh, oh, gross Oh, two, two I've got to think of in France straight away. Uh, the Eur Omeret, which is uh, poached eggs in a red wine sauce. Um, most people think it looks gross because you make this concentrated red wine sauce with the little pearl onions and the mushrooms and the lard on the, the bacon bits. Concentrated, which are like beef bourguignons and uh, meret sauce. And then you poach them eggs and then you crack the eggs in there and uh, all the gooey yellow yolk oozes into the red sauce. And most people think, oh, that's gross, but I tell you that's it's the best breakfast delicious. you can think of. Mm-hmm. But um, perhaps even more gross would be um, for Christmas specialty in Rome is the Testa di Abacchio, which is literally a baby sheep's head. It's um, particular at Christmas time, and they actually split the head, uh, they cleave it uh, r- right through the middle of it, and so you get half a head smiling at you with the... Uh, so half a ha- nose. I need to half a nose, some. half a brain. <laughs> um, you, you literally, um, you, you scoop a little of the brain out, you pull the jaw apart, eat the uh, the meat, and then the uh, the pièce de résistance is the eyeball, which actually tastes like a, a sweet roasted onion. You've eaten a baby lamb's eyeball on Christmas? I certainly have, and, uh, and it, it grossed, like it grossed me onion. out, but um, it was a, a boyo thing where you were uh, challenged to eat it, and uh, I have to say it was really pretty delicious. Nina, is there anything in uh, the low countries that would rival that in grossness? I don't think so. That is, I think Jamie's gross level is lower than mine. <laughs> what about haggis? Haggis, that's a good thing. Haggis, um, uh, I mean, haggis is... Uh, Nobody up there will tell you what they put in it. Well, you, this is the Scottish sort of <laughs> traditional uh, soft meat, right? Well, again, it's used its um, poor, poor folks' um, food. Um, historically, it was a way of preserving. I mean, all sausages are uh, skin, but instead of using the, the gut here, they actually use the stomach. You don't eat it. It's just the casing of it. But it's all those bits of the, uh, the sheep, uh, including the uh, what we call offal, I think you call organ meat, um, various offcuts of it, and it's all cooked together with uh, oats. And some and, spices? Um, very little onion, and uh, today they may put a bit of garlic. Some people try right. and spice it up, but quite honestly, it's that wonderful flavor of the oats uh, mixed okay. with this, and then it's uh, boiled up and uh, usually eaten on Bern's night and uh, cut with a ski and do the little knife in the cross of St. Andrews, and then you pour a wee dram on the top and eat it with uh, nips and tatties, the yellow Scottish uh, turnips and uh, mashed potato. Yeah. And so that would really, the, the poor Scottish food from ages past and today, celebrated with much fanfare. And um, Robbie Burns even has, a, when they're, they're piped into the table, and uh, Robbie Burns even wrote a poem, an ode to the haggis, and it, all I remember is the last line which says, Great chieftain o' the puddin' race. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're eating our way through Europe with Jamie Blair Gould and Nina Derks, and our phone number is 877-333-RICK. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Garrett's on the phone in Chicago. Garrett, thanks for your call. Oh, hi, Rick. Uh, I just have a question in general. I'm just curious about, um, like, breakfast in Germany. How come it's so hearty and there's so much variety to it compared to the usual bread or Danish and coffee that you get in Italy, France, and Spain? You know, when I visit Germany, I'm just astounded at the huge breakfast spreads and the bed and breakfast, you know, that you could hardly find in Italy or France. Well, we'll let Nina answer that because she comes from a Germanic country uh, just across the border in, in Flanders. 
I also um, lived and worked in Germany for two and a half years, and I always, I have to say, looked forward to these hearty breakfasts. There are so many beautiful bread rolls with seeds, etc., which I don't get in Italy. And I think it's because we are a northern country. The climate is not as warm. You need to set yourself up with a hearty breakfast for the rest of the day. And then you can go out and cope with the rest of the day. Whereas in Italy, the climate is much warmer. You just make an easy start throughout the day. The sun gets hotter and hotter, so you need to have a siesta. And then you can linger over a longer lunch. You don't need to have a hearty breakfast. You want to get working straight away. I think it's probably also a, a rural factor as well. I mean, you're going and working in the fields all day and there isn't much time to take off. And so you want to uh, fill up on a, a big... Well, like the American or British breakfast well, the, as well. it's the rationale for the English fry. Exactly. I mean, you've got to get those calories in and then you can go out and work in the fields. Also, remember in the Mediterranean, because they've had a siesta, they're having dinner as late as 10 o'clock or later. And then uh, in Italy, you, you felt like you just had dinner in the morning. So you just really grab a, a cup of coffee and a roll on the run to your work, and then you're going to go home and have the big meal of your day is your lunch. And my experience in Italy was also that the Italians are famous for sleeping in, and uh, they want to get up at the last possible moment and uh, and just grab it on the way, and then they're not going to waste the time to cook it. And you see that in the cafes all over yeah. the big cities of Italy. And then you have to think also, I mean, they, they usually have other things like, uh, you might not know that uh, tiramisu, uh, the, the classic dessert, of course, is uh, Venetian, and it literally means pick-me-up. Um, the Italians have to come out later in the day, in the, whether it's the morning or the afternoon, and they need a pick-me-up. because they really have I didn't know that. Tiramisu, that's a T- good phrase Tiramisu. Oh, pick-me-up. Now, oh. Nina talked about the bread with all the grain and the nuts and the full corn. Seeds in the there. seeds and so on. That was the same thing I was thinking about, because when you're in Germany, you get a basket of this wonderful bread, and it's always fresh. I've had hoteliers that wouldn't serve breakfast on... I think one morning of the week the bakery opened late or something, so they had to delay their breakfast until they got the fresh bread there. They really are passionate about that. Oh, yes, absolutely, yes. And, of course, we have a lot of dairy produce, too, in the low countries, also in Germany. Our breakfast is full of yogurts and cheeses, etc., which we don't get at all in Italy. I must mention, in the old days, you would likely find just a croissant and a coffee with some hot milk in France or something, and less than that in Spain and Italy. And now, all over Europe, for a traveler anyways, you get a pretty hearty breakfast served to you in the hotels. Thank you very much, Rick. I guess my ideal day would be breakfast in Germany, lunch in France, and (laughs) dinner in Italy. (laughs) That sounds pretty darn good to me. I'd go for the breakfast in Germany, I think, too. Thank you for your call, Garrett. Thank you very much, Rick. Bye-bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're dreaming about food in Europe with Jamie Blair Gould and Nina Derricks. I just love to think of edible highlights of my travels. When I'm in Basque Country, the spider crab is just, like, incredible. I don't know if you guys have been to Basque Country. Oh, I know. I've done a lot. Oh, the tapas there? Oh, yeah, the, or the San pinchos, Sebastian, as they the call pinchos, them. Right. Yeah, pinchos in uh, San Sebastian as well. Oh, I mean, to me, uh, the Basque Country is one of the great eating experiences. Uh, outside of Paris, there are more Michelin stars in San Sebastian than any other part. And uh, the Basques, uh, I find, are remarkable people anyway. They're, they're trenchermen, as we say, in, in my country. Uh, there are no meals. The day is a continuous meal. And each of the bars is just heaving with these wonderful pinchos, tapas, as we know them. So fresh, so wonderful. The tradition, of course, is that you just go from one bar to another. You have uh, one pinchos, uh, one huitram of something, and then you head on to the next one. And that's the hardest part because uh, there's so much that you want to eat, but you've got to get on to the next bar. It's funny you say that, Jamie, because I was just researching in San Sebastian and Of all the cities in Europe, I don't think I've ever put as much importance in actual pub crawl, or or what you'd call it, going from one little bar to the next, eating these pinchos. I say you've got to be disciplined. Just one here because you want to have the whole experience, and it's hard. You can easily settle in. Oh, and it's a culture. I mean, uh, you talk to any hardy Basque, and they'll, they'll tell you all about it. I mean, that is the best way is to talk to the locals about it and find out how to do it. Okay, it, when, I, when I think about that, the spider crab just comes to mind. I forget the name, but it's just a delicacy. When you're thinking Basque cuisine, what ingredient do you go for normally? Oh, uh, well, well, certainly. I mean, there are so many, but yeah. uh, the spider crab is certainly one of those which is uh, delicious for sure. If I'm thinking about Germany, I think about sauerkraut. Growing up here in the United States all my life, I thought sauerkraut was just pretty forgettable. You get to Germany, especially, I think, Bavaria, it's a whole different experience. Mary in Ocean Springs, Mississippi, emails us, and she says that this is the best way to see Europe. Don't be afraid to eat what the locals are eating. Highly recommended are the imbus stands in Germany for the best bratwurst and the pomfrites. <laughs> she just loves the pomfrites in Germany. You know, I like the pomfrites in Germany, but really the best pomfrites have got to be in Flanders. Nina, that's your homeland. Tell us about the 
the passion for French fries that you have there in the north part of Belgium. It's street food. That's um, how it became so popular, I think. And um, French fries, uh, to French um, fries means to cut them up in slivers. That's where the name comes from. But they are Flemish fries. Oh, to French is to cut in slivers? Cut them up in slivers. That's right. You could French uh, a carrot? You can, exactly. It refers to the shape in slivers, So you could have a French apple. You could, yes. Okay, so these are fried French potatoes. And then I think when I'm in the Netherlands, they call them uh, Flanders, what is the... And these would be Flemish fries. Flemish fries, they are. So we call them French fries, they call them Flemish fries. But the people in Flanders really are quite proud about the way that they cook their fries. How do you cook a good Flemse in Flanders? Essentially, it's got to be a good potato to start with, which is the same everywhere. But uh, also, the, the key ingredient is they're twice cooked. So when you go to the fritkot, as they call them in Flanders, you will see the potatoes already cooked on the side. And then they put them in the the frying net again and double fry them. And what this does is it it makes them puff up. And this is really the the special factor. They are puffy compared to what I'm used to in a fast food place in the States. And you don't necessarily dip it in ketchup. No, absolutely not. The big one in um, Flanders is mayonnaise. And I think that's the first recipe I learned to make at home is how do you make mayonnaise? How do you make mayonnaise? Um, with tons of oil, it's 90-90% oil, but basically you put one egg in a bowl, you put some mustard in, some salt, and then you just keep adding um, oil in a very, very thin stream. But 99% of it is oil. And you mix it up. And you mix it up with a food processor. Wow. So now that really is what would distinguish great fries is probably great mayonnaise. For me, I'm a Brit, and, uh, you know, as much as I love my Italian cuisine and French cuisine, uh, there's only one thing to put on fries. Sarsen's vinegar. Sarsen's vinegar? Yeah, it's malt vinegar. Malt vinegar? Yeah. And that is an adjustment for Americans. You go to a fish and chips place in uh, Britain and you're going to get vinegar. Malt vinegar on it, yes. And that's the way to go with lots of salt. Yeah, so I I think for me, um, mayonnaise on uh, frites is like putting fat on fat. (laughs) Whereas when you put uh, vinegar on it, it kind of cuts the fat. So that's what uh, makes it special. And I would say I absolutely agree with that. There's only one way to have Flemish fries. It's with malt vinegar. But good ideas travel really slowly sometimes. That's a big leap for a Flemish person to acknowledge that the British-style malt vinegar on the fries is the best way to do it. Very dangerous, I would think. Yes. When we think about Britain, Britain is making great strides in respect to its cuisine, even beyond the French fries. Yeah, I would say, um, I, I think Britain's always had tremendous ingredients. And I think there just isn't this culture, living in France and uh, now in Italy, I think that the regional recipes are handed on from uh, mother to daughter and son to whatever. But in England, the ingredients have always been very good, but there just isn't this tradition of passing on the recipes. But if they have their ingredients that are good, they cook them and cook them and cook them until the peas are mushy. Well, the, the, the mushy peas is a, a, a specific thing. It isn't actually your regular pea. It's a particular type of pea called a marrow pea, which is much more starchy. It's really quite delicious. These mushy peas actually become a, more like a porridge. Okay. And uh, it's the thing to have with your um, fish and chips. People brag vinegar. about it. You see shops all over uh, Blackpool Absolutely. bragging about their mushy peas. mushy peas. But you go into the pubs, and pub grub used to be notoriously forgettable, and now they take great pride in their crispy uh, vegetables and, and wonderful dishes in the pub. And it's a lot of times associated with a restaurant, which would be quite expensive, and you eat in the pub, and it's remarkably affordable. A lot of the pubs seem to be doing a lot of continental food, but for me, I like it when the British stick to what they do best, but just cook it well. For me, the best thing out is like a steak and kidney pie, and if you don't like the kidneys, which I do, then just have the steak and ale pie or the steak and mushroom pie, chicken, turkey and ham pie. um, And I like a shepherd's pie. A shepherd's pie or cottage pie, and the difference there is that shepherd's pie is made with ground lamb, rather, and a cottage pie is made with ground beef. Jamie and Nino, I'm really big into trying to share the culture and the history and the art with people, and I use as a rack to hang these ideas, buildings and sites and tangible things. But if you know the cuisine, you can also hang the culture and understanding of the culture on the cuisine. I think it's very much so. I think um, you have to understand, and this is what I've learned living in Italy, is that uh, it's part of the tradition. The Italians, for instance, will not just drive out to where they know a good winery to buy wine, but they'll also grow out to a place where they grow rice or um, other produce, and it's, it's, it's just very much part of the tradition. Anywhere in Europe you can go, you can stumble onto forgettable food or you can hit the specialties. I think you should have, as part of your ethic as a traveler, a determination to try the specialties. They can be serious cuisine or they could simply be the macaroons on the Champs-Élysées. 
Absolutely, and and pretty much every town has a specialty. So um, it's let's, just a question let's of doing a little of these research. Let's list specialties. Uh, barnacles, persebish in Lisbon, in Portugal. Well, those are quite incredible things. I mean, what you have to remember there is that a lot of people lose their lives fishing for these things. They actually have to climb down in Galicia, where I've had them. They've actually had to climb down over the cliffs, which is extraordinarily dangerous to pick these things off the rocks at the bottom with the waves crashing in. Enormously dangerous. So Consequently, um, quite expensive. Uh, consequently, very expensive. And frugal as I may be, I splurge for the persebish, the barnacles, when I'm in Galicia and in Portugal. And they're delicious, quite ugly, but delicious. You can get them in a market and actually have people cook them up right there in, in little cafeterias in the market for you, fresh off of the stalls. And that's when they're so nice. I mean, it's, it's eating in situ right there. Freshly steamed barnacles with a nice local beer. That's good living. Well, we could talk forever about the food of Europe with Jamie and uh, Nina, but uh, we're going to wrap this up. And I'd like to leave people with just one beautiful European flavor in their mouth. Nina, if you were to share one special taste treat, take us there. I'll take you straight into one of the cafes in Antwerp, where I'd sit down in front of a plate of mussels. They count on one kilo per person. And you ate your way through mussels, preferably in the months with an R, when the mussels are best. The month... Having an R, with an R. If the month has the letter R in it... Then the seafood is best, traditionally. Then the seafood is best. And you'd go for the mussels in a cafe in Antwerp. That's right, yes. With Flamsefrietjes, Flemish um, chips, and mayonnaise. And there's many ways to have your mussels. What what is the standard way? The standard way, um, I would say like this, in a cafe, or you can also just make... Um, but, but the name on the menu, I mean, you got a la Provence, you got uh, a la Thailand, uh, you know, there's different ways to, that they serve the mussels. Mussel met Vlaamse There you go. Jamie. Oh, I think um, it's hard to get away living in Italy from porcini mushrooms. I mean, when they're in season and they're right, they're fantastic. Um, spring, fall, when they come out, uh, a little bit of rain, they come up. Uh, you have to hunt from them, which adds a little cachet to the whole thing. You bring them in fresh, slice them up quite thickly, and then just put them in the pan in a little bit of olive oil until they go slightly crispy on the outside but stay soft in the middle. A little bit of parsley, bit of garlic in the pan, and just eat them that way or or with a little fresh tagliatelle or um, in a risotto. My goodness, I would love it if both of you would wish me bon appetit in Italian and in Flemish. Nina? It's makkelijk. Jamie? Bon appetito. Mille grazie. Dank u wel. You'll still find a little French influence left over from its 20th century colonial days in the food of today's Vietnam. Up next, travel writer David Farley tells us what tasty morsels he enjoyed eating on the streets of Saigon with the prodding of a Vietnam-born New York chef. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Ahoj, já jsem Honza z Prahy. A protože cestujeme s Rickem, tak cestujeme v prvé řadě po hospodách. Tak dáte si pivo. This was Czech, and it means, Hi, my name is Honza, I'm from Prague. And since we are traveling with Rick, we are traveling mainly through the pubs. Will you have a beer with me? Ahoj, já jsem Honza z Prahy. Protože cestujeme s Rikem, tak cestujeme v prvé řadě po hospodách. Tak dáte si pivo. They say time is a great healer, and that's certainly the case when we consider Vietnam. Just a couple decades ago, it was a hellish site of a horrible war, and today it's got the hottest economy in its corner of the world, and it's a new trendy destination for travelers. We're talking about Saigon today, Ho Chi Minh City, and we're joined by David Farley. And David writes for the New York Times, for Washington Post, for Slate. He's written a fascinating book called An Irreverent Curiosity, Italy, and his search for the missing foreskin of Jesus, believe it or not. And David's latest work is on the cuisine of Saigon. And it's an article in the New York Times, and David's here to talk with us today. David, thanks for joining us. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, now let's talk about Vietnam in general. A lot of travelers consider Vietnam, quote, the new Thailand. I mean, Thailand was the slam-dunk place to go in Southeast Asia in in past decades, and now uh, Thailand's well-trod, and Vietnam is the new destination, and it's quite trendy. What's it like to be in Vietnam? It's chaotic. uh, It's fun. It's very affordable, and the people are super friendly. I, I can't recommend Vietnam enough, actually. It's a great place to travel to. Is Vietnam still divided? It is in a way. I mean, the two major cities of Vietnam, Hanoi and Saigon, have quite a rivalry and sometimes not in a 
terribly friendly way, not in a violent way anymore, but it's still divided mentally. But as you know, the the war finished and the North won and the South was taken over by the North, you could say, today is the South kept down by the North or are, is everybody okay and uh, they're just rebuilding and looking ahead rather than into the past? I think that's the case for sure. But uh, a lot of people who supported the South, who survived the war, didn't get as many benefits after unification in 1975 as the people who supported the North. For example, medical expenses and, and so on. Ah, but it's probably important for American tourists to go there to remember that 1975 was a long time ago, and most of the people you look at weren't even born then. Uh, how was an American received on the streets of Saigon? Unless they're hiding it really well, they were very friendly to me. And as you said, there's been a huge population boom in Vietnam since 1975, and so most of the people there weren't even born during the war. And so I think in that way, they're really putting the war behind them. First of all, when we talk about Saigon, of course, the formal name is Ho Chi Minh City. I guess that's what happens when you lose the war. <laughs> the guys who take you over get to name your city from their greatest uh, political and military hero, Ho Chi Minh. Uh, but is the technical name Ho Chi Minh City, and, and what do people call it? What's the correct word? The technical name is Ho Chi Minh City, but I spent about a week there, and uh, I, I don't think I ever heard anyone call it Ho Chi Minh City. First of all, it's just it's kind of a long name, and so, uh, but that's not the reason. But people are just so used to saying Saigon that everyone calls it Saigon still. Just like in Mumbai, when you're there, few people say Mumbai. Everyone still calls it Bombay, all huh. the locals. So Ho Chi Minh City was kind of like just a, a victory thing for, for the North Vietnamese, I suppose, and uh, maybe a slap in the face of Americans. And then today, uh, they're just going with the, the historic name of Saigon. Is there, is there some sort of colonial flavor to Saigon? I mean, I can see how a lot of times they would change a name because it has a colonial bad uh, taste to it. But Saigon is, uh, is a Vietnamese name, right? Yes, it is. There used to be a lot of streets with French names that have been changed since 1975. Um, there's the famous one, Dong Khoi Street. It used to be Rue Katinat, which is famous from hmm. Graham Greene's the, the Quiet American. They've made a point to take the French colonial heritage away, so it's really indigenous Vietnamese city now. Exactly. And exactly. that's, that's a, a logical thing to do when you throw out your colonial overlords, I guess. Is you, mm -hmm. It's just like anywhere in the planet. I mean, everything in Iran used to be called the Shah. Now it's called Khomeini. Well, who's in power, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, when you travel in Vietnam, are there, what, what kind of sightseeing is there? Is there French colonial sightseeing? Are there sites about the war? Are there a lot of memorials? Do you go into the markets and buy, you know, American helmets and dog tags? There is a market where you can buy uh, some apparently war memorabilia, but I've heard of a lot of it is, is fake. You can buy dog tags and helmets and so on, and some of it might be authentic. 35 years on, I would imagine it's as fake as pieces of the Berlin Wall in, in Germany. <laughs> exactly. But there are lots of French villas that are occupied now by government offices and so on. Mm -hmm. um, there's lots of war sites. For example, there are memorials to the what they call the American War. There is the, the Coochie Tunnels, which are some tunnels outside of Saigon that you can go to. And, I've and heard those inside. are fascinating. Did you go in the, in the tunnels? I did not. No, I was too busy eating my way through the city to go to the tunnels. But. Okay, priorities. Yes. And, and if you eat a lot, you can't fit through those tunnels because they are so skinny. I've heard fat people go through them and they just get very, very claustrophobic. I heard that too. And I don't think I would like that. I'm, I'm not fat yet, <laughs> but um, I don't think I would like going in them. The big war site in Saigon is quite interesting. It's the War Remnants Museum. It's quite intriguing because it used to be called the Museum of American War Crimes. Wow. And they haven't changed the the topic of the of the museum, but they just they changed the name perhaps to be a that's, little bit more That's a more correct. polite name, you know. Yeah, that's, exactly. Is it still propaganda? The the victors get to write the history? Exactly, yeah. You see the war from a completely different side, and it's not all completely outlandish, of course. There's just there are lots of things about the war that the American press didn't report on, for example. And I would imagine it's described in very good English, uh, intended for the all the American tourists that are going to be coming in. Yeah, I paid attention to that, and I thought they must have gotten a native speaker to write all of this because it was it was written in perfectly typo-free English. That's what you do, and I love that in my travels, is to go to museums around the world and remember who's paying for this museum and what is their agenda. And, uh, you know, it's everybody gets to shape history. It's not, it's not just our enemies. We shape it, and they shape it, and that's just sort of one of the spoils of war. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with David Farley. 
David Farley's written an article on eating his way through Saigon, and it's okay to say Saigon, even though the technical name is Ho Chi Minh City, because uh, that's what local people say. David, let's talk about the food in Ho Chi Minh City or in Saigon. Uh, it sounds like a one big food circus. It is. I mean, you walk down these tiny streets or even busy, big, chaotic streets, and everywhere you look, there's someone stirring a pot on a kind of cauldron on wheels, and uh, sometimes you don't really know what they're cooking until you wander over and, and uh, just ask for it. And, you know, again, and when, while you're eating it, sometimes you don't know what it is either, but it, it tastes great. I love it. I love Southeast Asia for that reason. I, I remember once flying out of Bangkok, and, uh, you know, I didn't want to eat, and I had some time to kill at the airport, and I didn't want to eat in the airport. So I just walked like four blocks across the street, kind of through open fields to a little village, and I had that all that, that wonderful local cooking just bubbling up and all the different soups and so on. And uh, it just anywhere you look in Southeast Asia, you can just enjoy that, that home cooking, can't you? Exactly. And I, I just want to say to the people out there who are going to Vietnam to really, uh, you know, I think people are timid to go up to some kind of local place. People are sitting on the sidewalk on these tiny little stools, child-sized chairs and so on. And they think, oh, that's for the locals. I'm going to go to a more westernized restaurant. But I challenge you to, to go over and sit down on one of those child-sized chairs and, and eat whatever they're serving because they're very welcoming. Um, it's very cheap. And the food is outstanding. I mean, I was so uh, grateful that I just said, I'm going to go sit down in this alleyway with all these Vietnamese men and, and eat whatever they're eating. And the food was just incredible, like pork chops over rice. And the, the pork chops you'd eat with chopsticks, and they would just fall apart when you touched it with your chopsticks. So tender. Wow. It was, you know, fantastic. So, David, from a safety point of view, if it was cooking in a stove like that, even if it might look a little bit um, questionable from a hygiene point of view by, by Western standards, did you find that if it was well-cooked, you could figure it was safe to eat? Yeah. I, you know, I never got sick. I never got close to, to becoming sick there from eating the food. Uh, the food seemed, you know, quite hygienic to me, even though it's cooked on the street. And, right. and there are probably questionable methods of, of rewashing the dishes and so on. But everyone I talked to also said that they had never been sick either. So, um, so I think it's very safe to eat the street food. Did you avoid the water and the ice? I did not. Um, I mean, I didn't drink straight from the tap, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, they drink a lot of beer in Vietnam, and the beer is mm -hmm. quite good. And there's a history, especially in South Vietnam, of a lack of, of refrigeration. Right. And so uh, one thing that they've done, because it's so hot there, is to put ice in their beer. And I know a lot of beer purists would cringe at the thought of having uh, beer with ice. It's called Bia Da in Vietnam. But it's, it's really refreshing and really, you know, when it's 90 degrees and 100% humidity, there's nothing tastes better than a beer with ice when you're there. And so, I, you know, I had ice in my beer, and I never, I never got sick from that either. Apparently, every town's got its own beer with a name on it, so you're drinking Hanoi beer or Saigon beer and popping a few ice cubes, and you're like a local. Yes, exactly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with David Farley about eating in Saigon. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Pam's on the line from Rochester, New York. Pam, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi, David. How are you? Doing Hi, Pam. Doing good. I am uh, traveling to Vietnam with my boyfriend for three weeks in May and in June. And uh, we're finishing up our trip with a five-night stay in Saigon listening to you talk, and I really appreciate you talking about the local places and uh, not being afraid to go into those places. And those are always the type of places that we love to find. Um, so my question is, what are some not-to-be-missed uh, food places in Saigon? And also, are there certain dishes or uh, little-known dishes that are things that we shouldn't miss while we're there? One restaurant that I, that I wrote about in my New York Times article that I think is really worth checking out is called Kam Noi Saigon. And it's out in District 3, so you take a cab and cost you about a dollar or two to get out there. It's really cheap. If you've seen either of the two episodes that Anthony Bourdain has done in, on his No uh -huh. Reservation show on Vietnam, he loves this restaurant. Their specialty is they cook rice in a clay pot, and then they break the pot right there on in the front room in front of you. And then they toss like a Frisbee the rice patty uh, across the room from waiter to waiter, I guess to get the shards off of the rice patty. And then it lands on your table and they sprinkle it with scallion sauce and it's really fantastic place. But besides the kind of slightly gimmicky thing, the food is, is really fantastic. No, and I, no wait I really a minute. Recommend wait, let me get there. this straight. I'm trying to get an image of this. They cook the rice in a clay pot until it gets crispy. And then to get the rice out, they break the clay pot? Exactly. And then they frisbee the crispy rice patty around the room to make sure all the little shards of clay are out of it. And yep. then it lands on your plate? And yeah, exactly. what, what do they put on it? Scallion sauce. And it's good. 
It's great. This is kind of an old custom in Southeast Asia, but no one really does it anymore. But this this is the one place uh, in Saigon, I think, where you can still watch them break the clay pot. By the way, we're going to have a, a connection on our website to David's website, and David will connect to his New York Times article, or you can find it there. But uh, David's website is uh, dfarley.com, D-F-A-R-L-E-Y.com. There's something called a bonseo. It's B-A-H-N and new word Z-E-O. And it's like a dosa, which they make in southern India, which is sort of like a crepe. Um, but it's more like a dosa. And inside this dosa, which is made with rice flour, is shrimp and pork and other kind of goodness. And uh, a bonseo is a great. And there's a famous one. It's in every guidebook, but it's, it's worth checking out. It's called Bonseo 46A. That 46A is, is the number address for the place. And it's an outside uh, restaurant, and all they do is make these Bonseo, and it's really fantastic. David, David uh, see if you can scare Pam and her boyfriend away with some talk about you know eating Macon rats or uh, <laughs> pig's, pig's blood porridge or something like yeah, that. Yeah, if you're extremely adventurous, um, and I recommend you know having an open mind when you go there because the Vietnamese, they're, they're fiercely omnivorous, you know, and so uh, right. they'll eat anything and any part of the animal. And, uh, you know, when in, when in Saigon, you know, why not? And so there's, there's a famous restaurant there actually called Huang Rong. H-U-O-N-G, new word, R-U-N-G. And local expats nicknamed it the Endangered Species Restaurant. And even though they don't serve endangered species, but they serve such exotic animals that, like I said, if you, you know, drink a couple of beers and you're feeling adventurous, you can go there for some you know, grilled field mouse, <laughs> uh, king cobra done eight ways. They'll even um, they'll kill it in front of you, and then they let the blood into a glass, and then you, you, know, you drink the blood. And then mm. they take the heart out, and it's still beating. And one privileged person at the table gets to eat the King Cobra heart as it's still beating. Wow. I, I don't know if we're quite that adventurous, but it might be somewhere we, we might uh, walk by and check out from the outside. Pam, good luck yes. on your trip. Thanks for your call. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now. Thanks. Wow. You know, David, when I was uh, in Southeast Asia, I enjoyed um, frog legs. And that's sort of a famous French thing, but they have a French connection there. Did you ever encounter frog legs in Vietnam? Yeah, I did, actually. And they were quite delicious. And also, one great experience in Saigon is going to the Ben Ton Market. Uh It's right in central Saigon. And uh, it's just this massive food market. They used to have more live animals there. They don't anymore. but, But there's a section of it where you can watch them skinning live frogs. You can watch them chopping up live fish, and there's all kinds of all kinds of uh, seafood there that they're selling. But there's also a section for food stalls, and the food there is really incredible. Um, it's none of it's written in English, so you got to bring along your guidebook with a good food glossary. I recommend Lonely Planet's uh, World Food Vietnam book, uh, written yeah. by a guy named Richard Sterling who lives in Saigon, and that has a great food glossary. And so I went to the the Benton food stalls and just sat there with the glossary and looked up everything that was available, and then decided what I wanted after that. Sounds like marvelous travel, and I I would um, endorse your endorsement of Lonely Planet. Uh, Southeast Asia is their sort of original stomping grounds, and they've got a real passion for the culture and the sightseeing down there. They know what they're doing. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with David Farley, who's written an article that's uh, appearing in the New York Times on eating your way through Saigon. David, I would imagine it's inexpensive, and you use the local currency. Uh, can, can you eat well for under $10? When I was there, I was going around Saigon with a chef from New York, a Vietnamese-born chef named Michael Bao Win, and often our meals would be less than $10 for both of us, which included a feast of food plus several beers. You can really live like a king there with just a, you know, a $20 bill, except, of course, you're using the local currency, which is called dong. You mentioned beer several times, and uh, I was reading that there's quite a beer culture in Vietnam. Uh, Beer halls, uh, it's just kind of like going to the Czech Republic almost. Almost, yeah, almost, except they're speaking a different language. Yeah, beer is almost ubiquitous there, as is the street food. There's an interesting connection, speaking of the Czech Republic, because there are a few Czech beer halls in Saigon and in other Vietnamese cities. And I think during the communist period in the Czech Republic, then Czechoslovakia, Students were going back and forth between the countries, uh, uh, you know, studying in each other's universities. And I think that's how this Czech connection sprang up. Because when I was in Prague, there's Vietnamese markets, and that dates back to the Cold War also. The Second World would have its own parallel thing where you've got people from Angola, Cuba, Vietnam, Czechoslovakia, all sharing their cultures, their beer halls, their uh, cooking, and, and uh, their work in the markets and so on. 
Exactly, exactly. So is the beer good, and do they have microbrews? The beer is very good. It's not, you know, I'd say Czech beer is probably my favorite beer of all, to mm-hmm. be honest. But uh, the local Vietnamese beer is is good. It's kind of light, but, you know, not Budweiser light, but light in that um, kind of way that you can taste great on a hot day. Uh, but there are some microbreweries, and most of the microbreweries are using Czech beer-making know-how. Okay. And so there's a lot of Czech themes to them, and you can to some of these uh, microbreweries, and you, the beer tastes a lot like a Czech Pilsner. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. Now, David Farley, let's just close things out here. We know we're going to have a beer with ice cubes in it made in Vietnam. Sit me down on a little plastic child-sized stool with a rickety table and describe for me the single best meal you'd take me to on my first evening in Saigon. <laughs> wow. If it was the evening, it would be different. One thing that you've got to have is it's called pho, and most people pronounce it as pho, P-H-O, but it's, it's pronounced pho, and it's kind of a beef noodle soup. But there's one particular kind that I that I ate there that I loved. It's called pho boko, and it means pho beef stew. Boko means beef stew. And it's this ultra-rich, dark, stewy version of pho. The broth is so rich. It was The first time I had it, it was a transcendent eating experience. Sounds good. David Farley, eating our way through Saigon. Thanks for sharing a, a tasty corner of this planet. Happy travels. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. We're assisted by Sarah McCormick with technical help from Andrew Wakeling, Robin Cronin, and Jonathan Lee. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in New York for their help today. There's more online in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel, and his country, city, and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat, and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.